Listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story company member, Molly Each. All right. You guys are being such an awesome audience tonight that in honor of the holiday season, I'm giving you a gift. I'm going to make you a mixtape. A Beatles mixtape. And believe me, this tape, I know, it's going to effing rock your world, okay? See, I am a total and complete Beatlephile. I've spent my entire life studying them, listening to their music over and over, and amassing a Beatles memorabilia collection that includes vintage teeny bopper magazines, books, jewelry, even a Beatles telephone. My devotion goes so ridiculously deep that once, when I went to see one of those Beatles imitation bands, I bounced after the first song because Imitation Paul was not playing his bass left-handed. It was so annoying. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. Okay, song number one, All My Loving. All right, I owe you guys an explanation of how I became so psycho about the Beatles. It was my dad. Jim Each, this green-eyed Irish Catholic, is an ex-hippie and a rabid 60s and 70s music fan. When I was little, instead of pulling me on his lap and reading me Goodnight Moon, he played me songs from Rubber Soul and Abbey Road, telling me stories about the Beatles and what made them the greatest band ever. And I listened very, very closely, tattooed it in my mind the way you do when you really want to succeed at something. All right, song number two, Got to Get You Into My Life. Yeah, it's this awesome peppy tune that could totally be this great love song, but you know what? It's actually about marijuana. True story. It was also my favorite song to listen to while researching the Beatles. In elementary school, I put myself through a rigorous Beatles study routine where I wrote down everything I learned about the Fab Four in this super special notebook. It was most intense on Saturdays when I'd put on this old Beatles interview album, pull out my notebook, and take notes. John favorite color is green. Paul, father, was a musician. George, thickest accent, very sarcastic. Ringo, makes fun of self and knows. So, okay, the sitch is that my Beatles research wasn't completely out of love, although I was starting to develop crushes, and George Harrison was just way foxier than any of the boys at my school. I was getting prepped for when my dad called. See, though he loved my sister Kate and my brother John and me, he just wasn't really that great at talking with us. So, how's school? So good, I would say from my seat in the pantry at my mom's house, where I dragged the phone so I could hear his voice clearly. Um, Mrs. Watson says that I'm the best reader in the class. I waited for his excitement, for him to use his special nickname for me, Zip. Hmm. I twirled the cord around my fingers. Um, I, I mean, I'm even better than Emily Roche. Hmm. Maybe, like, the best ever in the whole school. (laughs) Hmm. But when the Beatles were involved, it was a completely different story. (sighs) Yes, for my fourth grade talent show, Jeannie Loftus, Shannon Brown, Molly McLaughlin, and I lip-synced to song number three, Twist and Shout. 
we pulled our hair into ponytails, dressed in matching jeans and jean jackets, pretended to play guitars and drums, and I adopted John Lennon's signature knee bop for my performance. That day, tucked in the pantry, sounded like this. So how's school? Good, I'm in the talent show. Me and my friends are lip syncing to the Beatles. Really, he said in his booming voice, zip, out of sight. Well, my dad was a no-show at dozens of my dance recitals, always promising to be there, yet never quite making it. He sat front row for my Beatles lip-syncing performance, starting a standing O when it ended and beaming broadly when we took our signature Beatles bow. You know, I used to be on point shoes. Yeah, I won state as a member of my high school dance team, yet the only show my dad ever saw me in, I was pretending to be someone else. Oh my God, I love this song. Song number four, Long, Long, Long. It's this good melancholy tune for when you're feeling a little lost. When I was a teenager, I used to listen to it often at my dad's house when we had to, thanks to the divorce agreement, leave our cozy home in Apple Valley and head an hour away to stupid Hutchinson, Minnesota to this cold white-walled condo with evidence of my dad's interests randomly scattered around. A few history books on a shelf, a small statue of a golfer in his room, and Beatles posters on the walls. We slept in the extra bedroom, home to my dad's stereo and record collection, and random storage boxes. Upon arriving, I would disappear into this extra room, throw on the white album and a pair of puffy headphones. I hate it here. I mean, I hate it here on a regular basis, but some weeks, things are especially off. My mom always says I have this sixth sense about my dad's drinking, and at this point, I've had a lot of practice. I'm listening to song number five, Cry Baby Cry, laying across our folded sleeping bags, staring at the inside of the stark white album cover. And although I'm painting this dreamy image right now, I'm in the middle of a nightmare. The sixth sense pit in my stomach is gnawing slowly, like I'd eaten too much raw cookie dough, as my suspicions had been confirmed that morning when I opened the garbage to throw away my cereal box and found a pile of empty beer cans. The next day, unable to look at my dad, I hadn't left the extra room. Instead, drowning my discomfort in songs number six, seven, eight, and nine, Strawberry Fields Forever, only a northern song, for no one, and she's leaving home, crying, panicking, hoping John and Kate didn't suspect anything. I would tell them later. Yo, zip! Dad would stick his head in the door. Let's roll. The Bears game was over, and it was time to go home. Finally. I would turn over on my side and look up at him, and it was always the same. I wished he would see the White Album cover, sit down and exclaim, Zip! What an album! Martha, my dear, one of the best songs ever. I would even pull out the headphones to make the music audible and push the album cover forward. But instead, noticing my teary eyes, he'd ask, What's wrong? Um, are you... Drinking again? I'd ask, my voice choking out the words. The sun would shine on his face, emphasizing this dull complexion and weary eyes. No, I'm not. Now get your coat. This lie, this simple denial, told me that the loop of Revolution Number 9 was starting to play. 
All right, if you guys have never dealt with an alcoholic before, you have to know it's just like revolution number nine, this distorted, confusing loop that just repeats and repeats and you have no control to stop it. My dad was a boozer, an alcoholic who often disappeared for large chunks of time when he was drinking. Since my parents divorced when I was five, my life with my dad had been this rotating loop of drinking and recovery, drinking and recovery. But then, a year out of college, rock bottom. This different, terrifying rock bottom, like below sea level to the bottom of the ocean. He emerged on the other side, a seemingly new man, his sobriety feeling more solid than before. He confided to my brother, I really need this to work because I don't have another recovery in me. Please, what? Ever. I was not about to be fooled. I was like George, Paul, and Ringo when Yoko started to sit in on their sessions, pissed off and completely skeptical. Because you know what? At 23, I didn't have another recovery in me either. And so I called. Hi, it's Molly. I'd finally gotten the courage to phone as I was walking to my writing class in the loop. I ducked into the foyer of Miller's Pub to get away from the train noise and bitter autumn wind. I stood near the window, super relieved to hear Hello Goodbye, song number 11, playing overhead. Zip, what's happening? Nothing. Um, I need to tell you something. I took a breath and summoned courage from the song above. What's up? I need to not talk to you anymore, I said. Well, what do you mean? I don't know. I don't know how long it'll be, maybe a few weeks or maybe years, but... I need distance. Don't call, don't email, don't get in touch. I'll contact you when I'm ready. All right? He took a deep breath. Take all the time you need. Song number 12, A Hard Day's Night. Song number 13, Nowhere Man. Song number 14, oh, A Day in the Life. Five years later, he was still sober, the longest stint that I could remember, and I was ready to finally have that real, true father-daughter relationship. But when we sat across from each other, sipping Starbucks, he was a stranger. All right, to be cruelly, cruelly honest with you guys, in the wake of this new relationship, I had developed a one-hour time limit with him. I could handle our surface speak for just one hour, peppered with a little Beatles talk, but after that I could feel my chest contract, my hands grip things extra hard, I need to bounce out of that sitch stat. Maybe it was residual anger, maybe I wasn't as over things as I told people I was, but one hour and I was finished. Oh. Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, so song number 15, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Uh, shortly after establishing a connection again, I was moving into a new apartment and the living room desperately needed painting and I desperately needed help. Also, song number 16, by the way. Lacking funds to even buy beer or pizza for friends who helped, I called on my dad. He owes me. I thought as I picked up the phone, come on, I dare you to say no. On a sunny June afternoon, he showed up on my doorstep with rollers and brushes. His now thinning hair was covered by a Cubs hat, and in the sun-drenched doorstep, I noticed that his face, now lined with wrinkles and frame, seemed a little rounder than before. He was smiling. 
Okay, if any of you guys have ever painted a giant living room before, well, clearly you can spot my flaw from here. That shit ain't gonna take an hour. So at the two hour mark, I found myself livid for no reason. He would talk and I was pissed. What, seriously, are you kidding me that you don't remember if I ever went to summer camp or not? He wouldn't talk and I was pissed. Unbelievable, this is your chance to get to know me, goddammit. And even just watching him cover the walls of, with off-white paint pissed me off. At hour three, my face flushed and my body moving with these sharp, angry motions, I knocked over the roller tin of paint. I screamed in this voice I didn't recognize. Hair crossed over my sweaty pink bandana and hung in my face. The paint started to seep across the hardwood floors and I could not take this anymore. Whoa, Zip, calm down, he said from his perch on the ladder. His green eyes widened. It's okay, we'll clean it up. Oh, I am just really frustrated. Okay, okay, he said. As he made his way down the ladder, his forearm caught on an exposed nail and dragged down. Oh, he said through clenched teeth. Damn it. His face was white and he grabbed a roll of paper towels, pressing it to his arm tightly. God, what? He pulled the paper towels away and revealed a six inch long diagonal cut, shallow enough, but oozing blood, which trailed down to his wrist. A tense minute. Then two, if it were anyone else in my life, I would have hugged them, grabbed some Neosporin and some ice cream, nixed painting in favor of just kicking it. Instead, I stood there, dumbly, my heart twisted, watching my dad clean up his blood. After what seemed like ages, I finally asked, are you okay? Fine, he said. He hadn't looked at me since he came off the ladder. I grabbed some Bactine and handed it to him. Good thing I just had my tetanus shot, he said, spraying his wound with a white-lipped smile. I tried to smile back, but my anger would not let my mouth turn upwards. Another tense minute, then two. Finally, cut bandaged and one wall to go, he walked across the room, pulled a CD from the rack, and put on a disc. Let's just get some music going, all right, he said. The first few notes of Here Comes the Sun filled the apartment, song number 17, and I felt them cascade over the anger in my bones and muscles. George's voice filled my mind and my heart with a calmed energy. I picked up my paintbrush again, dipped it in too much paint, and heard the splat as it hit the wall. Um, hey, um, did, did you know that George wrote this song when he was in Eric Clapton's garden. George Harrison. He is so underrated, it's ridiculous, he said, dabbing his paintbrush at the corner of the windowsill. Oh my God, I know, right? He's so underrated. I mean, totally. By Abbey Road, he was clearly the best songwriter in the group. Without a doubt, he said, smiling. That was Molly Each, 
If her story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and the Morse Land, or one of our upcoming special events. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Mikhail Fixel, and Nick Kawahara. I am Miles Pulaski. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances and our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at secondstory.com. Mm-hmm.